It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains graphic descriptions of murder. Last October... We visited a small house in a rural area of southern Indiana. It is the sort of place where a half dozen or so chickens wander aimlessly through the yard and driveway. The squat blue house was flanked by a ramshackle chicken coop and a red shed spilling out lawnmower parts. Next door, a little boy romped around with a yapping puppy. It seemed quiet out there, a small home in the country. But if you believe Donald Forrester, a murderer lives here. We told you about Forrester last week. He's the convicted rapist who told police he was one of the Burgershaft killers. According to him, 
the murders were set in motion when the leader of a Speedway Indiana drug ring sent a crew to their restaurant to punish manager Jane Freed for not paying a drug debt. The alleged leader of that ring, let's call him Gary, although that's not his real name, lives in that blue house we mentioned, raising a clutch of chickens between physical therapy appointments. Gary was never arrested or even charged with these crimes. Some people say he got away with murder. Others insist he was a victim of one of Forrester's tall tales. It seemed to us that the best way to figure out the truth would be to come out here, knock on Gary's door, and ask him. We couldn't quite see him inside on any of our visits, but it certainly looked like someone was home during the few times we knocked on his glass-paned door. Big plastic jugs, ones that sort of looked like the kind you slot into an office water cooler, sat on the floor in the front room. On our last call, which took place after nightfall, we saw the lights of a television flicker across the window furthest from the front door. But Gary never answered our knocking. If we wanted to find out the truth about Forrester and his claims, we would have to look elsewhere. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we're The Murder Sheet. We'll be taking a multi-part look into the Burger Chef murders. We'll be presenting you with a new theory about what happened each week as part of our mini-series, You Never Can Forget. On a weekly basis, you're going to hear from figures you've never heard from before. You're going to hear about facts that you never heard before. And hopefully, you'll walk away with a better understanding of the sheer complexity of this awful crime. We don't just rely on what we've been told or what we've read. We've worked this case ourselves. We decided to do this podcast so we can tell you what we've learned and even clear up a few misconceptions. In this mini-series, we will give you the top theories about this crime. After we've finished covering the Burger Chef case... The murder sheet will continue to investigate different restaurant-related homicides for the rest of Season 1. Some of the information we are sharing with you this week about the Marion County investigation of Donald Forrester comes from the reporting Dan Luzader did on the case back in the 80s for the Indianapolis Star. If you are interested in this angle of the case, Luzader's articles are well worth reading. We're the murder sheet, and this is... You never can forget the confessions.
Years ago, I went to a carnival, the 4-H Fair in Columbus, Indiana, to be precise, and decided to spend a few dollars to try my luck at a game of chance. It was called Bowler Roller. The player has to try to roll a bowling ball up a slightly inclined ramp. If you hurl the ball with too much force, it'll speed over a bump in the ramp and you lose. If you sling the ball too softly, it'll roll back down the incline towards you and you lose. I lost, but just barely. It seemed to me that if I tried again, I would surely do better and win the prize, a big stuffed animal and bragging rights. So I paid more money for another chance. And I lost again. But I came so close to winning that I couldn't resist trying yet again. And so I did. Over and over again. I never stopped to think that the game was designed not just to make people lose, but to also make them think that they nearly beat it. This encouraged dupes like me to keep on playing, even though we were destined to lose. I ended up going through quite a bit of money that day and, not surprisingly, came home empty-handed. I remember that day often when I think about Donald Forrester. Last week, we told you about how Forrester came on the radar of Mel Wilsey of the Marion County Sheriff's Department around 1985. While serving a 95-year sentence for rape and kidnapping, Forrester told investigators that he had information on the Burger Chef murders. Over time, Wilsey began to suspect that Forrester knew much more than he was saying, that he actually helped commit the murders. And more than once, Wilsey and his team thought they were close to proving Forrester's guilt. So close, they couldn't possibly give up. We discussed one of those occasions last week, the time when law enforcement went through Forrester's septic tank, sifting for shell casings he claimed were recovered from the crime scene. They found three. Two of them were twenty-twos, which did not match the caliber of the murder weapons. The third may have been a thirty-eight, which was the correct caliber, but it was too degraded to match to any specific weapon. This was not a win, but it felt like it was close to one. The Marion County team never found anything to confirm the story Forrester told, but they never found anything to categorically disprove it, either. So they kept working the case. There was even another dig after the septic tank episode. Forrester told the police that bloody clothes worn by the killers were buried in the yard of a house in Speedway, Indiana. After he identified the home, law enforcement excavated the yard, and found nothing. But the Marion County deputies told themselves that this failure didn't truly mean much, that it certainly didn't disprove his story. Maybe, after Forrester helped bury the bloody clothes, the other killers simply dug them up again and moved them elsewhere. So they kept working the case. But, as time went on, some of the Marion County Sheriff's Department's methods began to seem less and less rigorous to other law enforcement agencies. Here's then Marion County Deputy Mel Wilsey. We went to the extent of getting a psychic. And uh, he rode with us for a week. We got him in the back of the car, and he, he's, he always told us he was getting his information from two little dead Indian boys. Apologies for the audio quality. 
When I interviewed Wilsey in his office at the Marion County Sheriff's Department a year ago, this podcast wasn't even an idea yet. Also, you heard that right. As of last year, at least, Wilsey still hadn't retired from the Marion County Sheriff's Department. We've included full transcriptions of all our episodes at MurderSheetPodcast.Buzzsprout.com for any listeners having trouble following any audio. The Indiana State Police began to have increasingly serious concerns about the way Marion County was running the investigation. Here's Tom Davidson of the State Police, the man who busted Forrester on the rape charge. This Marion County Sheriff's detective, which I have no use for, he may have done a lot of wonderful things in his life, but this one, he, he fed Forrester. When law enforcement officers talk about feeding a suspect in this context, they mean someone has supplied the prisoner with bits of information he can use in order to make his statements appear to be more credible. In some cases, this happens deliberately, but in others, it occurs because someone innocently messed up. Let's give an example of how this sort of thing can happen. Imagine that Anya is a detective interrogating me about a confession I've made in a murder case, trying to determine if I actually know the details of the crime. Did you shoot her? Yes. How many times? Once. Who shot her the second time? She has now told me that the victim was shot twice, the detail I can possibly use to concoct a more credible confession. The transcripts of the Forrester interrogations are said to contain instances of this sort of thing. And there's more. They were in a room, and you would have the maps and the photographs of the crime scene. And the guy said, you never do that. The fact that Forrester knew details about where the crime happened and the nature of the wounds suffered by the victims is often cited as evidence that he was telling the truth but it seems much less persuasive once you learn he spent time in a room where crime scene photos and maps were displayed. These sorts of errors make it difficult to evaluate the veracity of any of Forrester's claims. Even when he supplied details that might otherwise have seemed compelling, a skeptical observer would have to wonder if those tidbits came from Forrester's memory or if there was just something that had been fed to him. We can reveal, for instance, that one of the people Forrester implicated in the murders was Jeff Reed, the same man Alan Pruitt said he saw outside the restaurant on the night of the abduction. Was this independent confirmation of Reed's guilt, or was Forrester just parroting back information Marion County fed him? To law enforcement officers like Jim Kramer of the Indiana State Police, the answer was obvious. He had bits and pieces of several of our main leads. That's why I say he was fed some information. Um, uh, But if we believed what he told us, we'd have had to have a bus to put all the folks that were involved in this. The Indiana State Police grew more and more concerned with how Marion County handled the investigation. And tensions between the agencies rose. Don Lindsay of the ISP was working with the deputies, and it was not going well. Uh, superintendent of the state police called me and said, hey, I know you're not day-to-day on this, but can you go? There was some friction between Don and these investigators. 
And uh, he said, could you go over there and kind of smooth this out and make sure it doesn't get out of hand? Um, and the friction really boiled down to um, uh, the investigators were saying A, B, and C happened, and Don would tell them no. And I can tell you a simple thing. Uh, the key to Jane's car, uh, they were alleging that someone had driven her car from the scene of the murder back to Speedway and dumped it. Well, her car key was in her pocket of the jacket she was wearing. So that it appeared, it seemed to me, and it's just the hazard of being involved in these things, like they were trying to make the make the facts fit the scenario that they had decided what had occurred. But despite all of the problems and all the different opinions and evaluations of Forrester and his stories, there was nothing that categorically disproved what he had to say. So they kept working the case. Forrester implicated another man to police, a man named Otto Deering. That's a name that we're publicly revealing for the first time on this show. Deering had connections to the outlaws a motorcycle gang with a strong presence in Indianapolis at the time. He had previously been convicted of various weapons charges, and even manslaughter. He seemed to be a plausible candidate to be involved in the Burgershaft murders. Forrester told the deputies he had direct personal knowledge of Deering's guilt. He said he witnessed this person uh, stab Jane Free. Um, but unbeknownst to him, we had found out the person he was talking to was sitting in federal prison in Minnesota the night the murder chef happened. Since Deering was in prison, he clearly could not have been one of the killers. Police had finally caught Forrester in an out-and-out lie. The investigators confronted him, telling him he had made up the entire story. The only question was why. Was it a piece of fiction? designed to keep him from being sent to the notoriously rough Indiana State Prison at Michigan City? Or was he only lying about some details because he was actually one of the killers and wished to protect himself? He told them the truth was that he was one of the killers, and he gave them a long, detailed statement implicating himself. A couple of days later, he told them that on second thought, he had actually made the whole thing up. Forrester's 1986 confession had sprung up and fallen apart in a matter of days. The Marion County prosecutor, Stephen Goldsmith, declined to bring Forrester or the men he named to trial. Meanwhile, Kramer saw Forrester one last time. And I gave him every opportunity to confess to be a man and either tell us that he made all this up or that he was involved. And, uh, I just I told him I said you don't have the intestinal fortitude to come forward with the information, and he he didn't know what that meant. I told him I thought he was a coward, and uh, his, he immediately you could see him kind of swell up, and uh, he said I'll tell you one thing: if you send me back to prison, you'll never solve this case. Well, he went back to prison, and. Uh, because that's the only, that was the only right thing to happen. That's where it belonged. But that was not the end of the story. Let's take a quick break from the Murder Sheet Presents You Never Can Forget 
to tell you about a podcast investigating yet another unforgettable crime. The Orange Tree is a seven-part series about a 2005 homicide that happened near the University of Texas at Austin. The murder of 21-year-old Jennifer Cave, who was shot, dismembered, and left in a bathtub at her friend Colton Petoniak's apartment, continues to haunt the area to this day. Like the Burger Chef murders, this case features plenty of twists and turns, including Colton's flight to Mexico with another UT student, Laura Hall. Both were later convicted in connection with the crime, although Colton has continued to appeal his verdict and claim innocence. The business student turned convicted murderer now says that he doesn't even remember much about the night Jennifer died. The Orange Tree is reported on and produced by Haley Butler and Tanu Thomas, who were both seniors at the University of Texas when they started this project. Together, Haley and Tanu strive to piece together this tragic story in an in-depth podcast that features audio from courtroom scenes and interrogation rooms, prison phone calls, and exclusive interviews with both the perpetrators and the victim's family. You can binge all seven episodes of The Orange Tree today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roco slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, back to the murder sheet. A couple of years after being taken to the prison at Michigan City, Indiana, Forrester reached out to Wilsey once more. He, uh, he, had, he used the phone and called me. And um, wanted me to come up and see him. He said he wanted to, he wanted to tell everything and get everything off his chest. 
I couldn't believe it. I thought, well, why are you doing this now? Yeah. Um, so Maxie and I and another uh, another detective went up there with a camera and movie uh, VCR things to record. Makes and sense. We did. Yeah. And the statement was probably an hour and a half, and we videoed it. He went through everything in detail. A few years ago, I was part of a team that obtained a copy of the statement Forrester gave to police in 1989. We shared that material with a local podcaster who assured us he would keep it confidential. But he broke his word and included it on his podcast. Thanks to my error in trusting this man, the Forrester statement is now effectively public, and so we include portions of it here, along with our analysis of it. The audio from the tapes is pretty quiet, so we apologize if anyone has trouble listening. Remember that you can follow along with our transcripts at murdersheetpodcast.buzzsprout.com. You mentioned that you wanted to admit your guilt in killing two of the people at the murder ship. Which murder ship you refer to? Murder ship When was this? November 27, 11.15 p.m., so Forrester's estimate is off by several hours. Okay, what part did you play at the murder ship? What did you do? I was hustling them in the van. There was uh, another car that came later. A smaller, a smaller car, a red car. Were you armed at that? What were you armed with? A 25, a 38, and a 9. What went wrong at the murder shaft that you had to do what you had to do there? Um, when the guy would come out of the back door for the trash, they had already set it up to try to get inside because she knew we were there because two of them already went in. And I guess he was just trying to play hero. That would be pretty bad, so there was no way just to, just to take Jane Creed out of it for herself. Why did you want Jane Creed? She owed $15,000. To you? No. To other people? So she owed $15,000 of what? The drugs? What'd you do that for? Collect the money or do something else? If the plan all along was to murder Jane, 
Why do it at the restaurant when she had other people around her? Couldn't they have ambushed her in the parking lot or on some other occasion where she was alone and therefore more vulnerable? And she owed you $15,000, or she owed your group $15,000 for cocaine. Start out 5000 No, I, I would I would exactly uh, familiar with what was going to happen. And so we got there, I knew it was slightly serious because she could she could be dead that she had already gone up right then. And uh, I know her brother, he would he didn't want to accept any of it, you know, any of the any of the, any of the dead, you know, as far as he was concerned, he talked his way out of that whatever happened to the system was happened to the system. How long prior to that had this been planned? I knew there was going to be something came through. Yeah, originally I was just supposed to be with somebody to look out. How did you know when you were supposed to go? We were sitting down on the road, alongside the road. You might flash their headlines, that's when we were supposed to come up. Everybody was waiting there until, what, the black kid came out? Yeah, we were sitting there with Jane Free after they went in like that. And uh, seeing how frank she was when they went in to get a coke or something to eat. When he went in and done that, seeing how frank she was, they knew when he come back out that she was locking the doors. And that's when we had fast rise and we pulled around the back of the place and we were sitting there in a van for some minutes before finally opened. What was the situation like from the point of where you're in the truck and he opens the door? What happened then? He was surprised. He was he didn't like many aggressive but he didn't have a chance. If 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 you're incarcerated, you have to up some people that's not incarcerated because you don't have nothing else to do. So you got you got boxing teams and you join you got all kinds of stuff and the guys out there don't know how to fold left hand, that left hand hook, they don't know what a walking chair is, or they don't even know where a street one two punch is. You have, you have experience like that over people out there because they're working, they ain't got time to get around with weights and go work out in the rain and stuff like that. And the majority of the prisoners do, so when you get released, the majority of the time they have to up so bad on somebody if it's a street fighter or whatever, and they just, you know, have nothing coming. You try to block the door, and that's it. What was the situation there? Know, it was inside, inside the door at the time. And he got whipped good, but that's because had, he, got, he got whipped both places. You know, but at one time, he was even outside and get hit in his face, getting beat. Crime scene pictures of Mark Flemons, the African-American victim Forrester describes here, do not show any evidence he suffered the sort of beating Forrester indicates. At the same time, probably wasn't, he wasn't even in the van yet. No, he was hurt. I, I thought he was beat to death there. I thought he was already dead. What happened then? After crying and begging. Who was begging? The young teenage girl begging me. She was begging just to let her go home. Don't kill her, let her go home. Let her, let her stay alive. She made home. Did they have any idea why you were there? I figured they did because their manager. Selling, selling, selling drugs out of that burger chef, and knowing that that one of the guys that was there that night has come in on numerous occasions, and sometimes she'd take a break and go out to the car with him, stuff like that, and pick it up, and then come back and be selling. I felt they, yeah, they knew what was going on. There's no way that somebody's going to be doing that. The rest of them up there's not going to find out. What was the next thing that happened after this black person was loaded up? And you said you went inside and you heard the kids begging, you know, they just wanted to go home and stuff. They were tied. They were put in there. We used to, 
we swore on one of them. I know because I seen one of the guys had swore. So one of his hands was bound with wire. Well, they really put wire on all three of their hands. I don't know. I knew one of them was bound with wire because I went to call him. He got some wire and brought it back. Gave it to one of them. What type of wire was it? I mean, you know, it was as thick as a coal hanger. You know, the kind of wire that's used on bailing. It is unclear why city dwellers like Forrester and his associates would have a ready supply of bailing wire in their vehicle. In any case, our understanding is that there were no marks or abrasions on the skin of the victims to indicate that they had been bound with bailing wire or anything else. What was the next step? Get him out of there. Okay. And how did you do that? All four of them then there was another car that came to it that was in my caravan with us. That's where they thought. At one time there was a green Pontiac there. I don't know who, I don't know whose it was. I seen it sitting there. I don't know if it was one of the workers or somebody else's. At one time, a green Pontiac was there too. Uh, was Jane saying anything while this was being done? Yeah. What she said? I asked her. I, I, mean, I didn't ask her, but she asked one person that she felt had to control the whole situation. To let her go and give it more time. Begging and crying. What was the answer to that question? No. Called the man and smacked her. She ought to be forewarned when it came back. She better have some of the money, if not all of it. She, she was already forewarned. She, she didn't. She's the one that's making problems all along. That's the reason why I said, you know, I'd seen her before, even. She kept behind, you know. She always had a, she always had a story. I had walked into a house once. As she was coming up, then uh, I pulled up in the yard one time, and she was talking to the guy outside by, by a car, and uh, I didn't say what my thought was, but I figured out. But uh, I seen her twice before, and that wouldn't do her seeing me. Not one day she was crying, she was coming out of the door, and I was going, she was crying. But a few days later, that her brother was over there, Together, hers and his, and he's making sure you know he's clear this man. He's throwing it all on her. And she's saying she'll get it. You said you know after you loaded everybody up, another car pulled in. Right. What was their actual part in it? You know what would they have to do? They just they just follow it like caravans, like so nobody else would get behind to get in, get in nice and place number or get in to where they might be able to see what something's going in on their van. Uh, you know, did have a chance something would go wrong or something happened. Or somebody might be able to see one of the faces or something, which they, they didn't work out like that. They just should, didn't worry about that. Mm-hmm. But they were. Anybody take any money for Burr Sheriff, if you know what? They did, I don't remember. I don't know if I did. I know they went through all the shit, tore the whole place up. <laughs> and some, they might have stuck some in, they might have stuck some in your uh, empty cash register. If I'd have been in that part, I'd probably know myself. Did you get any, if in fact there was money taken, did you get any money? I got some money that wasn't from there for that, just to be with it. No, I've already been told I'd get that money. About $500 was stolen from the burger shop that night. Apparently, it was all given to Forrester in order to compensate him for his work. What about the other people involved? How were they compensated? Anything happened to... Uh, Jane Freed's car. 
Jane drove a white Vega. Did the van have seats in it? Yeah, it seats in the front. It was custom made. Okay. Custom made. Found the van at that time, then it got definitely a guy's blood sample off the back of it on that road. Where were the kids sitting at? They were laying down. They just pushed together laying down. They drove the victims to a wooded area in Johnson County. You will recall from last week that Wilsey had been impressed that Forrester had been able to direct them to the spot where the murders happened. But, in fact, the location of the murder site had been widely publicized by that time. In the weeks after the murders, photos of the area had been printed in newspapers and the names of neighbors were published. The area was described in the sort of detail that would make it easy for a former resident like Forrester to find it. The Indianapolis Star, for instance, said it was on private property, two miles west of Center Grove High School, and one mile east of Indiana 37. The paper reported the spot was adjacent to a private driveway in a hilly wooded area about a half mile south of County Road 700 North. In December 1978, the Franklin Daily Journal actually printed the last name of the property owners who discovered the bodies. Even Johnson County Deputy Paul Simons admitted in a 1993 news article that Forrester could have figured out the location of the murder by reading newspaper stories. What happened when you got down there? They took Jane Free out first. What was she saying at the time? She was begging for her life. I know James. She was begging for her life. Uh, what happened then? She in the part where the thing goes through. I took uh, two Demerols after we got there. Yeah, I gave two Demerols Demerols after we got there. Uh, When they were dragging, I was I went on the other side. I took a leak on one side of the van. Okay, as you're going to the bathroom, beside the van, they also unloaded the rest of the kids too. I'm putting together what we're doing exactly what we're doing. That's the one thing I had. Had not been discussed because nobody ever figured on having to take everybody out of the bullshit. Nobody thought about that and saying, okay, this is what you do. We get four people to do like this. It was meant to get her and her alone and just come up with no way to get her without getting in. They scared her first by going in there. Did you, who killed Jane Freak? Do you know? Did you do it? Uh, who hurt Jane Freak? Let me put that one first. Did you? someone else? I stabbed one. You stabbed Jane Freak? Now you know who Jane Freak is. You've already said that. Did you stab her? Or did you shoot her? I shot one in the face. Two of the Burgershev victims were shot in the back of the head. Neither of them were shot in the face. I stabbed one. I shot one. I, I shot off like three shots, hoping. All right. I stabbed one and the handle fucked, the handle fucked up on him. Uh, come loose. How many times you, did you stab Jane Freak? If you remember. Or did you just stab her once? I stabbed one just one time. 
Which is that Low, down low. I understand. One, she kicked her, uh, kicked her, she kicked her legs because she was trying to, uh, uh, kick the, kick the knife I had in my hand. And that's why, that's why I stabbed her low. Okay. Because the legs, kicking the legs. Jane was not stabbed down low or anywhere near her legs. She was stabbed twice, both times in the heart. Now, Forrester describes the location of victims Ruth Shelton and Danny Davis. Yeah, they were two, the, the two together, but not, not close, just, just a feet. A couple of foot of time. A couple of feet. Yeah, they, just, they was there together. Actually, Danny and Ruth lay so close together, they were nearly touching. Forrester insisted that this was never intended to be a quadruple homicide. It went too far, there's no way to back out of it. I mean, if, if you just kidnap somebody and, and take them somewhere else, you know, that's, that's a pretty good charge nowadays. You know, it's years out there, especially after you've already harmed them. One guy's already been beat pretty bad. I mean, they're, they're looking several years anyway, so they don't have anything to lose. Some of, some of the charges, if, you, if that's committed, if if you kill a person, you get less time. Wilsey shared this 1989 Forrester recording with the legal community in hopes that they would choose to pursue charges against Forrester. And we had a meeting with um, Goldsmith, who was the prosecutor. Dave Cook, who was probably going to be the next prosecutor here. Mm. Sheriff McAtee, who was the sheriff here at that time. Uh, Johnson County prosecutor. Johnson County Sheriff's Department. And we took this video and played it for everybody. Okay. And they all felt that this was, he was the guy. Um, sometime frame after that, I don't remember, they called me in the Sheriff's Office with, with uh, Goldsmith and said that they were concerned that he was going to recant again and they wouldn't prosecute because he's already doing 95 or 99 years. Mm-hmm. I said, what about the family? The press accounts at this time don't quite line up with Wilsey's recollection. According to the Indianapolis News, Sheriff McAdee said that none of Forrester's story matched up with the physical evidence at the crime scene. He said as far as he was concerned, the Forrester matter was closed for good. The Franklin Daily Journal quoted Detective Bill Smith of the state police as saying that Forrester was just lying again. So... That's how it ended. Wilsey always said that Forrester never asked for anything in return for his stories. But the convicted rapist did also vow that he would only talk to investigators if he was taken to the Marion County Jail. Forrester therefore bought himself a year and a half away from the state prison in Michigan City by dragging out his first confession. Forrester is rumored to have been the victim of sexual assaults while incarcerated in prison. The longer he told stories that kept the interest of the Marion County Sheriff's Department, the longer he could stay in the much safer confines of the Marion County Jail. In the run-up to his 1989 confession, sources tell us that Forrester's mental health was unraveling in Michigan City. He claimed to hear voices in his head. He claimed prison officials had implanted a device in his brain to control his thoughts. He was sent to the Westville Correctional Facility for several weeks until he agreed to take medication voluntarily. 
Forrester may have had a more calculated reason to lie. After his final confession fell apart, the convict told investigators that he'd been attempting to gain attention so that his rape conviction could be overturned. For Forrester, the confessions had represented a temporary respite, or even a chance to escape prison, at least on some level. But after his 1989 confession fell apart, Forrester went on to spend the rest of his life in the prison at Michigan City. In 2006, he testified against former Indiana State Trooper David Camp, who had been charged with murdering his family. Bizarrely, prosecutors and defense attorneys alike didn't seem to note who Forrester was and why he might have had a vendetta against the Indiana State Police, law enforcement, or just telling the truth in general. That same year, months before he died of cancer, Forrester sent out a meandering letter to Gary, the man we mentioned in the opening. Forrester, a convicted rapist who had twice confessed and recanted about an unsolved homicide, wrote that he believed Gary had informed the police that he was the guy who killed those people at the Burger Chef. He confessed to Gary that he'd tried to pin the case on him and apologized, writing, I have asked God to forgive for putting you through all that. Even after Forrester's double confession went nowhere, the investigation into the murders continued. Next week, a special agent of the ATF makes a breakthrough. I thought, man, we've got, we've got the killers. And I remember standing in the marshal's office talking to him about charging him with murder in his juggler vein. I looked at him, he was about ready to jump out of his neck. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet Presents, You Never Can Forget. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast or by searching Murder Sheet. For exclusive content like bonus episodes and case files, become a patron of The Murder Sheet on Patreon at patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you enjoyed listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Before you go, please stick around to hear from our friend Nina from the Already Gone podcast, a great show you should definitely be checking out. I first learned about the Burger Chef murders from her 2016 episode on the case. Murder, missing persons, unsolved mysteries. Already Gone explores lesser-known cases from Michigan and the Great Lakes region. I'm Nina Instead, the voice behind the Already Gone podcast. Join me for an in-depth look at stories that will have you looking over your shoulder and locking the doors at night. Find Already Gone on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.